51. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it, and they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross, that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma saphtachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, Surely this man was the Son of God. Some women were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, the younger, and of Joseph, and Salome. In Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs. Many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem were also there. Well, I don't know how many of you have seen The Crown, uh, the Netflix series about the reign of Queen Elizabeth II. Uh, it's been a bit of a phenomenon. Um, and it sparked something of a resurgence in interest in all things royal. Um, it's, in fact, officially the first television series that Catherine ever binge-watched, um, so that is something, too. Uh, earlier this year marked the 70th anniversary of the Queen's ascent to the throne, and next year will be the 70th anniversary of her coronation. Um, and I'm sure some of you here would remember the events uh, that were depicted in the show in its early seasons, uh, particularly the coronation itself. Uh, it was on the 2nd of June, 1953, um, and I don't have a living memory of it, but some of you here may. Uh, in fact, it was the first big television event that the world had ever seen, and they estimate that up to 20 million people in Britain uh, were watching the television broadcast. Uh, in fact, they, they flew film reel um, of the coronation ceremony in the day um, over to Canada so they could watch it 
on the same day that it happened. Uh, they stuck it on a plane and then they had a, a fighter jet fly it over to Vancouver so that it wasn't too much of a delay uh, in watching the coronation itself. It was a big deal. Um, the coronation ceremony was held in a, uh, a quiet little church called Westminster Abbey uh, and it was as elaborate and lavish as you might expect. Uh, the new monarch was surrounded by all of the finery of kings past and present, draped in ornate robes, ceremonies steeped in history, and all of the most important and powerful people were there. That's the kind of thing that usually happens with a coronation. Today we're thinking about a very different kind of king and a very different kind of coronation. Right throughout this account, of Jesus' trial and execution, the writer Mark wants to uh, impress upon us, wants us to appreciate that what's taking place here is in fact a kind of coronation. Uh, over and over again in this story, Jesus is identified as a king, uh, usually in a mocking way, but the identification is there all the same. Uh, three times it's on the lips of Pilate, largely to try and goad the Jewish leaders, but in verse 2, he says, are you the king of the Jews? To Jesus himself. Verse 9, do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? What shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews? The soldiers get in on the act as well. In verses 17 and 18, we read how they mock Jesus as a royal figure. They put this purple robe on him. Later, they twist together a crown of thorns and set that on his head. And they begin to call out to him. Hail, King of the Jews. Uh, even the written notice above his head, the formal charge against him, that's what it is, the King of the Jews. And finally, the people mock. Let this Christ, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Mark wants us to appreciate the irony of what is happening here. The King of the Jews with his crown of thorns, draped in his purple robe, mocked by all as king. For her coronation, Elizabeth entered Westminster Abbey and sat where so many kings and queens before her had sat, on this chair, the coronation chair it's called, commissioned by King Edward I around 1300 AD. And... For every coronation since, over 700 years, the next king or queen would sit on this for their coronation. It's a rich tradition. And the chair is still there in Westminster Abbey if you ever get to visit. For Jesus' coronation, he did not sit on an ornate throne of beautifully carved timbers. His, his throne, he was nailed to, that wooden Roman cross. His crown was not a thing of beauty, inlaid with precious gems, but a twisted knot of thorns. His throne was the very instrument of his death. This coronation may feel wrong, look embarrassing. Uh, it, it seems so distasteful, certainly a humiliation. But make no mistake, this is where Jesus achieves his greatest victory. Because this is the moment when God meets our greatest need. 
This is where sin is defeated. This is where God's love for the world is demonstrated as he pours out his righteous judgment on our sin, but absorbs that cost within himself. The reality of that cost is no more evident than in that anguished cry that we hear on the lips of Jesus. In Mark chapter 15, verse 34, it says that three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That shadow of death which has been hanging over Jesus' life has now enveloped him as darkness literally covers the land. Jesus has been betrayed, tried and crucified. There he hangs on a Roman cross and death is coming. But this is no ordinary execution because the man who is dying is clearly no ordinary man. Even the Roman centurion carrying out the act could tell that much. But it's Jesus himself who directs us to understand what's going on here, even through this cry. Cries out to his father, why is he being forsaken? Jesus is experiencing being forsaken by his father as he is being punished for the sin of the world. The cry that Jesus takes up on his lips is from an ancient text from the 22nd Psalm, a psalm which speaks of the suffering of God's anointed one, a psalm that anticipates the events of this day. And the prophecy is quite eerie in some of the details that it describes. Further on in that same psalm, we read these words. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. And so in taking up the words of Psalm 22 on his lips, Jesus shows us that what's happening on the cross is no senseless tragedy. This has been a long time coming. God has been planning this since the beginning. Jesus knows what he's doing. In fact, he's come for this very purpose. Throughout his life, Jesus described his mission, his purpose, in lots of different ways. He'd variously describe it as having come to lay down his life, to pour out his blood for the forgiveness of sins. And only a few chapters earlier, in Mark chapter 10, Jesus has talked about what he's about to do this way. He says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life, as a ransom for many. Jesus understood that in order to save us, in order to bring forgiveness, the price of sin needed to be paid. That he would have to go to the cross and give up his life as a ransom for many, for others, for us. The innocent for the guilty the perfect son of God for a world enslaved to sin. And so as he hangs on that cross, he's mocked, he's taunted. But those who taunt him speak a truth that they themselves wouldn't have understood. Have a look at verse 29, chapter 15. 
says, those who passed by who insulted him, shaking their heads and saying, so, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. And those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. Even people passing by that day take the time to have some sport with this condemned man. They mock Jesus. They taunt him to come down from the cross and save himself. The chief priests and the teachers of the law seemingly aren't satisfied with having Jesus condemned to death and so they have a dig too. He saved others, but he can't save himself. Now, I'm sure their words were intended to deliver maximum humiliation, but there is a truth behind these taunts, isn't there? See, without knowing it, they've captured the essence of what's happening on the cross. If Jesus was to save others, he couldn't save himself. He can't do both. So yes, he is saving others, but at the cost of himself. It was the only way. And so here in the cross we see the grace of God, that undeserved, outrageous generosity of God towards us, that Jesus would give up his life so that we could be brought back into right standing before God, so that we could be free, free of sin and the judgment that it brings. That is why he couldn't save himself. I mean, of course, Jesus could have done just that. In Matthew's Gospel, Jesus tells his disciples that he could put this thing to a stop at any time, uh, that there's this uh, legion of angels just waiting for the word. Do you think I cannot call on my Father, and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? But how then would the Scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? Jesus is no victim of circumstance. He comes into this world for this purpose, to give his life. And so he takes up the words of Psalm 22 as he cries out, this genuine cry of anguish to his father, a cry that speaks to us of his suffering, of the pain that he is enduring. And I don't think simply his physical suffering, although that would no doubt have been immense, but also as he experiences the forsakenness of his father, as God's wrath is directed against him. 1 Peter chapter 2 describes it this way. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. By his wounds you have been healed. This is the price of your forgiveness. But there is another way for us to understand this cry from Psalm 22 as well. No doubt it's a cry of anguish, but it's also a declaration, strangely, of Jesus' trust in his Father, that his Father will ultimately deliver him and vindicate him. Right after the words that Jesus actually cries out, in verse 4 of Psalm 22, we read this. In you our ancestors put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were saved. 
In you they trusted and were not put to shame. I don't doubt that Jesus directs us to Psalm 22 because despite his suffering, despite this experience of being forsaken, Jesus will continue to trust his father because he knows that his father will ultimately deliver him. And on that third day, we will see that deliverance as the father releases his innocent, faithful son from the very bonds of death. The cross may be shameful, but it is not a defeat. It may be humiliating, but here is where Jesus triumphs as king. Mark records for us that with a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. It was finished. What does the death of Jesus achieve for us? The payment for our sin? Absolutely. Jesus here is dying to pay the penalty for our sin, to secure our forgiveness. But it does more than that too. Mark includes what seems like a rather curious detail for us there in verse 38 when he says that upon the death of Jesus, the curtain in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now this curtain uh, was in the temple in Jerusalem and it it separated a room in the temple called the Most Holy Place from the rest of the building. This is the room where the Ark of the Covenant was kept. This is the place where God's very presence was manifest. It was a place where once a year the high priest would enter uh, with the blood of an animal on the Day of Atonement to make atonement for the sins of God's people. That curtain separated the holy God from his unholy people it also functioned to separate sinful people from the wrath of that righteous God and when Jesus dies God symbolically and literally tears that curtain right down the middle because he's declaring that the days of sacrifice are at an end the days of needing a priest to bring the blood of an animal for your atonement those days are over A new way has been opened up for us. True reconciliation, true lasting reconciliation with God is possible. It's what the book of Hebrews tells us. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened up for us through the curtain, that is, his body. There on the cross, Jesus deals with our sin once and for all. And his broken body tears down that barrier which stands between us and God. And so we can be people who now approach our Heavenly Father with confidence as his loved children. This is what Jesus has won for us. This is our great privilege as his people. And why our God is not only worthy of our thanks, our gratitude, but our worship too. So what do you see when you look at that cross? Do you see your king serving you? Do you see your saviour dying in your place? Here is our hope, our forgiveness, our life if we bend the knee before this king 
I can't pretend to know where each of you stands with Jesus. If you've ever sought his forgiveness, if you've ever acknowledged him as your king. But if you haven't, perhaps it's time you did. This is a king worth living for. This is the one who died to ransom you, to set you free. That's why we call it Good Friday. Because this is the best news you could ever hear. And if you already own Jesus as your Lord, take a fresh look at your king being crowned. Remember again what it cost God to put you right with him. And give thanks and praise to your king who gave his life so that you could be set free. This is a king worth serving. This is a king worth your very life.